This is HPR episode 2870 entitled Hierarchy of Evidence and is part of the series Health and Healthcare. It is hosted by Ahuka and is about 14 minutes long and carries a clean flag. The summary is All studies are not the same. Some are better than others. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Hello, this is Ahuka, welcoming you to Hacker Public Radio and another exciting episode in our series on health and healthcare issues. And I want to continue our look at studies because I think it's important that we have an understanding of how these things work. So, what I want to do this time is talk about something that is called the hierarchy of evidence, which is another way of saying, you know, uh, not all studies are equally valid. Uh, there are better and worse ways of doing studies in medicine or other things for that matter. Uh, so as, as we saw in our last episode of this series, uh, the one on evidence-based medicine, uh, the question that we looked at is that we formulate medical treatments on the basis of the best evidence from quality research studies. Uh, breathless posts on social media about the miracle breakthrough your doctor doesn't want you to know about are, of course, absolutely worthless, as are pretty much any of the blatherings of celebrities like Gwyneth Paltrow. And we said it was hard to beat double-blind, randomly controlled trials, but this is slightly more complicated when we consider how feasible it is to do these kinds of trials. Like in our example of breakfasts and test scores, no decent person is going to deprive a group of children of having breakfast in a randomly controlled trial, even if that would get us high-quality data. Some things are just not done. Now, there is an approach favored by advocates of evidence-based medicine called the hierarchy of evidence, that ranks the quality of data by how the evidence was obtained. The idea is that you would rely on such evidence only as much as the data deserve based on how the study was done. If the data is low quality, you place a low value on it. It still may be something, but you would of course reject it if a better study came along with a different conclusion. So, how does this hierarchy rank the kinds of studies? Uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. You can go to get more information about this. Uh, but we're going to go through the ranking. Now, as we do this, uh, let's acknowledge this approach is not 100% supported by everyone in medicine. 
But we should also understand that it is vastly superior to doing so-called research on Facebook. In a world where people are not vaccinating their children, promoting fad diets, and shoving odd things into various orifices, this approach to validating evidence is a huge improvement. So, let's start at the top. What is the best kind of study of all? Well, that would be systematic reviews and meta-analyses of randomized control trials with definitive results. Kind of a mouthful. We're really going to break this one down so you understand exactly what's going on here. Uh, Systematic reviews are gathering the whole body of literature on a topic to see where there is agreement. By definition, you have to have multiple studies done before you can even think of a systematic review. But when you have them, and they all point in the same direction, that is very powerful. And if these studies are themselves randomly controlled trials, the evidence becomes extremely persuasive. When you have multiple studies pointing in the same direction, that is powerful because it addresses one of the biggest problems, that of replicating results. Now, it also matters that the individual studies being combined into the meta-analysis are themselves of high quality. And if they are based on randomized controlled trials, that creates at least a strong presumption of quality. So that's the top of our hierarchy. One step down would be the individual randomized control trial. And we have to understand what this is about, because this is kind of the gold standard for trials. Um, So here we're talking about an individual study. So it's never going to be quite as persuasive as a group of studies that are in agreement. But if done properly, it's a pretty good indication that there's something there that we want to take a look at. Um, We should also understand, though, that not all randomized control trials are equal in weight and reliability. Here are some key questions that we would ask if we're taking a look at a randomized control trial, and, and it's going to help us to determine how much validity we place in it. So first, did the study ask a clearly focused question? A good study will be designed to address a specific question and focused on that question. If you did a study of heart disease and along the way noticed a result affecting kidneys, well, that's not focused. It may suggest something worth looking at, but the appropriate response would then be to design a study to look at the kidney problems. Second, was the study a randomized controlled trial, and was it appropriately so? While randomized controlled trials are the gold standard, they're not always the most appropriate way to study something, as as we mentioned above. Next, were participants appropriately allocated to intervention and control groups? Now, this is a question of randomization. The mathematics of probability require that every study member has an equal probability of being assigned to the control or to the study group. 
but there can sometimes be reasons to use things like stratification. This helps when you need to ensure, for example, that both men and women are properly represented in a study that is meant to apply to both sexes. Next, were participants, staff, and study personnel blind to the participants' study groups? This is the double-blind requirement we have discussed previously, and it is important to ensure that no one has a biased view of the outcomes. All participants do not know if they are in the study group or the control group, and neither do the people doing the study. Next, were all the participants who entered the trial accounted for at its conclusion? One thing you need to guard against is dropping inconvenient data. If you started with 100 people in your study, but only report results for 90, what happened to the other 10 people? There can be legitimate reasons that people drop out or are dropped by the study, but you need to account for it so that we know you are not trying to bias the results by getting rid of data points that might contradict your conclusions. Another question, were participants in all groups followed up and data collected in the same way? Next, did the study have enough participants to minimize the play of chance? Sample size matters in statistics. To state the obvious, a study of two people is nothing more than an anecdote. It may be right or it may be wrong, but you should never rely on it. On the other hand, a study with a thousand people has a much higher probability of being right. Next question, how are the results presented and what are the main results? How precise are those results? How big is the treatment effect and how does that compare to the margin of error? If your study showed a decline of three points in cholesterol, with a margin of error of plus or minus 20 points, it's not very precise. There may be an effect, but you wouldn't place a lot of trust in it. And the final question for randomized control trials, were all important outcomes considered, and can the results be applied to your local population? Now, if you're a pediatrician and the study was entirely made up of adults, the results might be valid, but do they really apply to your population? And if you're looking at the study applying to you, a similar question comes up. Was the study entirely of men and you're a woman? Was it all of people in a different racial group? And yes, that can matter in some cases. So, Randomized controlled trials can be a little bit tricky. They're invaluable if done well, but you have to take great care in doing that. Now, if you can't do a randomized controlled trial, the next level down in our hierarchy is something called a cohort study. Cohort studies follow a group of similar people, i.e. a cohort, over time and can be useful, particularly in epidemiological studies. By definition, there is no control group involved, which is why these rank below randomized control trials in the hierarchy. One of the classic cohort studies 
is the Framingham Heart Study. It studies the residents of Framingham, Massachusetts in the United States, and since its beginning in 1948, it has now moved to the third generation of participants. Much of our current knowledge about hypertension and heart disease comes out of this massive cohort study. But it also has been criticized for overestimating some of the risks, and there are questions about how well its results apply to other populations. Next step down is a case control study. Uh, These studies attempt to match people with a particular condition with other similar people who do not have that condition. These may appear to be superficially similar to randomized control trials, but are different in very important ways. These are observational studies, and the people doing the study are not in any way blind, nor are the participants. And there is no scope for randomization because each participant was deliberately selected for the study. One step down from that, cross-sectional surveys. These are also observational, but in this case it is looking at a population of some kind at a specific instant of time. So if case control studies are sort of, you might think of it as the less useful version of randomized control trials, you could say cross-sectional surveys are the lesser version of cohort studies. Uh, Generally, these studies are done using general data that is routinely collected, and because that data is routinely collected, they are inexpensive to do. But this also means that the data was not collected to answer the specific question you may have. Finally, at the very bottom, case reports. These are reports about specific individual cases. They may provide a clue, but you don't have a sample, a control, etc. A good example are the cases that Sigmund Freud reported. And when you understand how little validity Freud's results enjoy today, you see the weakness in, there's a, in this particular approach. There's a reason it's at the bottom. Uh, you know, to me, case reports are like the, the people who say... Uh, you know, I know this guy who was not wearing his seatbelt. He got into an accident and was thrown clear. And if he'd stayed in the car, he would have died. Therefore, I'm never going to wear a seatbelt. And it's like, no, you're an idiot. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so, summarizing. The hierarchy from best to worst looks like this. At the top, systematic reviews and meta-analyses of randomized control trials with definitive results. Then randomized controlled trials themselves, the individual studies, cohort studies, case control studies, cross-sectional surveys, and case reports. So you should place the most trust in systematic reviews and meta-analyses and the least trust in case reports. So this is Ahuka for Hacker Public Radio signing off and reminding you as always to support free software. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. 
Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Heka Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.